Please stand for the reading of the word from Romans chapter 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord, please be seated. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, We are excited for Reed to start. I think he's coming uh, this summer, and uh, I want to encourage you, we're going to talk about this more the closer we get, how to offer him a warm welcome. It's it's good news. Uh, What we're talking about today is one of my favorite texts in the entire New Testament. If you, if you were to put me on a desert island and you said, you can only have one chapter of the Bible with you, which chapter would you choose? There is a very good chance that it would be Romans 8 with me today. And so um, if you have your Bible, I want you to ro- open up to chapter 8 in Romans, or if you have your app, open that up, because I'm going to be looking at the whole chapter, not just the text that you heard today, although we are going to end at that text. But to understand kind of the the crescendo that's happening as, as Paul writes this chapter. You kind of have to understand the whole picture, the view of the story of Romans. And I want to kind of begin with the end goal in mind that Paul has. Paul has done his ministry throughout the course of his, his missionary work uh, has been specifically not just to the Jewish people, but also to Gentiles. In fact, one of the most profound and astounding things that happened in the first century, that first generation of Christians, is the realization through the power of the Spirit that Jesus is not just meant for Jewish folks. Jesus is meant for everyone. And Romans is interesting because this is the only book that Paul is writing where he's writing to a church that he didn't plant. He's writing to a church that he and his friends didn't start. And, and he's writing for slightly different purposes. And in Corinthians or Ephesians, uh, Philippians, he's writing to address some of the concerns that are happening and going on there. In the book of Romans, he's writing so that they can know who he is. It's kind of like a, a recommendation letter for himself in one sense. But he's also trying to do something else. You see, probably the situation that's happening in the city of Rome at the time is that the Jews have been expelled from the city. Now, this happens. We know this from history. This happens several times in the kind of the the centuries before and after the time of Jesus. Because, you know, leaders in charge, emperors, whoever, need a scapegoat to blame on the problems that are happening. Let's blame the Jews. Let's kick them out. 
You know, let's divert the, the problem away from us, put it on somebody else. And there's a good chance, according to most scholars, that the, the church in, in Rome has been divided because the Jews that were part of that church have been kicked out of the city for five years. And then they've been allowed back. Five years, three to five years is a long time. I don't know if you can think back three to five years in, in your life, but that's basically pandemic, right? I can't tell if the pandemic was six months long or 10 years long. It's one of the two. It seems like both, but that's how it feels, right? But you can imagine, you, can, you leave a place and then you, you come back uh, five years later. Maybe it's a church that you had to move away from and you come back to it, you visit again, and things have changed. There's people there that weren't there before. They're brand new and, and you don't know who they are. There's people there that have really grown up and matured. And they're not who you remember because they're somebody else. They're a new leader. There's people there that have suffered tragedy and, and, and heartache and disappointment. And, and they're still there, but they walk with a limp, but you weren't there to walk with them. Things have changed. And so you can kind of imagine the stressful reunification that's happening in these house churches in Rome. As leaders who were there five years ago come back and some of the Gentiles are like, well, you know, you left. And, and we've kind of filled your spot. I mean, we're glad you're back, but we don't need you anymore. The tension of, of who's in charge and how that looks. So the end goal in mind that Paul has is, how do we talk about the unity that we find in Christ? of Jew and Gentile, of rich and poor, of, of, of slave and free, of male and female. How do we f express that unity? And, and that's, that's where Paul wants to begin. And so he begins in chapter one talking about the pagans. Now this is easy thing for a church crowd to do, talk about them that out there. And Paul begins by saying how sinful they are and how evil they are. They choose idolatrous things to worship, things that aren't a living God, things that are just stone and wood and how ridiculous that is. And worshiping those things leads to all sorts of broken behaviors. And everybody in the church at this point, Phoebe is the letter carrier. She's reading this to the church and, and people are nodding their heads. They're like, yeah, get them, Paul. Go get those guys out there. They're doing everything wrong. And then in chapter two, he turns that mirror right back on them. And he says, so you that know the law, you have no excuse because you're doing the exact same things. Oh, it's that Nathan moment. And in chapter three, Paul states his thesis that all have sinned. And I don't think that he's necessarily making this kind of like global statement, although that's true. I think what he's saying is Jews have sinned and Gentiles have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified freely by his grace. And then he goes on to, to articulate the beginning, the, the first fall. He wants to talk about Eden to Abraham, and he takes us to Genesis 3, and he talks about the original sin of Adam and Eve. And uh, one scholar pointed out that there's this midrash, this kind of commentary to the Old Testament that um, Jewish scholars had. And the midrash is, is that in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, as, as God is kicking out Abraham, or excuse me, as God is kicking out Adam and Eve, he kind of whispers in his breath, but don't worry, there's Abraham coming. 
And if you are here with us in January, then you know the story that we're talking about. We talked about those first 11 chapters of how sin is introduced into the world and then it, it festers and it grows from Cain and Abel to, to Noah, where there's this kind of general rebellion, to the story of, of Babel, where there's organized rebellion against God. And in each time, God responds with grace and mercy. And finally, the response of that whole cycle and system of sin is Abraham. God makes a covenant. God makes a people. But then Paul would say, and and then we're given the law. And the problem with the law is that the law relies on humans to keep it. The law relies on us to hold it. If, If I'm a part of any committee or system, I need you to know right now, that committee is flawed because I'm a part of it, right? It's flawed because human beings are engaged. What Adam, the firstborn of creation, could not do, Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation, will achieve for all of us, first for his own people and then for the world. And the magnificence of Romans is the starry-eyed hope in Paul's eyes as he dreams about what God did through Jesus Christ and what the Spirit did at, how, what the Spirit did at Pentecost will shape his own people. That's what he dreams of, that somehow the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God, adopted in, grafted in, will bring healing to his people as well. And it's impossible to talk about Romans chapter 8. We're talking about the nature of the Spirit, what the Spirit does. The Spirit is infused in this chapter. It teaches us how to pray. It is present in our suffering. It sets us free. It creates the space for you to pursue true righteousness and holiness. So much so that Paul will say that if the Spirit does not live in you, you have nothing to do with God. Paul wants to acknowledge that This isn't the way it's supposed to be. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's that Midwestern family that saved their entire life so that they could take their kids to Disney World and they know this is the only trip they'll be able to afford to take and it rains every day they're there. It's the guy that wins the lottery and he dies the next day. day. Right now, I think I'm just quoting Alanis Morissette songs, but you kind of get the, you get the gist of it, right? We live in troubling times. We live with the constant disappointment that this reality is not what it's meant to be, and we are aware in our deepest of hearts of the space between God's reality and what we experience, the suffering that exists in that space, the disappointment that exists in that space. Paul says even creation acknowledges that space. The creation is longing to be redeemed. Droughts and earthquakes, tornadoes and hurricanes, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Cancer and hemorrhoids and Alzheimer's and malaria and diseases that take out children, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And we know this is true because we experience it in our bodies. The longing for redemption is shared with the cosmos. I think in Romans chapter 8, the best way to understand what Paul is saying is through the the primary lens of covenant. It's the promise that God makes with the world. And covenant is kind of one of those theological terms, those Old Testament terms. And basically, in the Old Testament, a a covenant is is a contract. 
It's an agreement that you make. If you do A, B, and C, I'll do X, Y, and Z. If you deliver such and such goods, I'll pay you so much money. It was a contract that you made, and, and they were pretty common. People made them all the time. The reality, though, is that humanity is unable to keep the covenant with God, and God is purely cleanly aware of this, and so God just chooses to keep the covenant himself. God has no expectation for humanity. This is from the very beginning. Remember when God calls Abraham and says, go to a place that you never, you've never seen before, and I will show you something that you would not believe. And it's in the midst of that journey that Abraham has a vision. Now, a contract in the ancient Near East was pretty simple. You'd take some animals, and you'd cut them in half, and you'd kind of lay them side by side, and then you'd walk through those split animals with somebody. And that was the agreement you're making. You're saying, if I break this covenant, then do to me what's happened to these animals. It's pretty serious stakes, if you ask me. Well, Abraham has this vision, and there's this smoking smudge pot, this black smoke that's coming out of this pot. The pot represents God. And the pot goes through the animals. Now, what's would be striking to any person that's reading this in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, which we would miss because we just don't understand it, is that Abraham doesn't go through. The entire covenant, the entire contract is set on God. God will keep it. It's not the faithfulness of Abraham that will keep it. God will keep it. It's as if you walked in to sign the mortgage on your house and the bank said, don't worry about signing anything. We've got it covered. And whether you paid your note or not, they got it covered. That would be awesome. That's what God does for us. And so, in Romans chapter 8, we have a glimpse of the power of God's faithfulness to us. Not on our merit, not on our skill, not on our ability, not on our achievements, but on God's faithfulness, on Christ's faithfulness. It's the truth that Evelyn Willis learned. Her son, Tim, told that powerful story at her funeral. That she had grown up in a system, a Church of Christ system like most of us, where you had to get it right. You had to get all of your actions right, and you had to get all of your doctrine right, and you had to get all of the, the church rules right, and if you didn't, you were at risk, and so you always lived in the fear of shame or guilt or punishment or, or being sh- banished or shamed. And she read the book of Romans and she discovered grace. It was such a powerful moment in her life. It changed her forever. Instead of being the person that's looking to judge others, she became the person that hosted and opened her home to everyone, anyone that would come. Grace has transformative power to us. And so Paul wants to tell us that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I think sometimes what we need to hear a word about in this text is that you need to hear a word about your sin. That nothing you have done, no action that you have taken, no act of selfishness or anger or just pure humanness can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Your sin does not hold a candle to the power of God's love. And sometimes this is a word that you need to hear about your circumstance. It's not about your sin. It's just the place that you're in. Sometimes hurricanes come. Sometimes tornadoes destroy things. Sometimes sickness and disease is going to wipe you out. And in that moment, nothing can separate you from the love of God 
that's in Christ Jesus. And sometimes it's a word that you need to hear about your striving. And I want to be careful as I say this, and I need you to listen to me carefully. There is a very fine line between striving that is healthy and holiness based on the righteousness of God and the kind of neurosis that church people can find themselves into. There's a fine line in it. And I've, I've spent all week trying to define what that is, where the line is. I just know when I see it in my own life. And so I need you to hear this, that your striving will not earn God's love. That is a free gift that's an, an already given to you. If we did nothing more <clears throat> than spend the rest of our lives reveling and basking in the love of God because of Christ Jesus, and this is going to be hard for some of you to hear, if we did not feed another mouth, if we did not offer hope to another troubled soul, if we did not justify our existence with good thoughts and good actions, if we did not provide escape for another child caught in sex trafficking, if we did not support those uh, working to create peace and conversation in the Muslim-majority world, if all we did was relish in the great love the Father had for us, if all we did was celebrate Jesus' life and victory all over death, if all we did was marvel in the mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit for the rest of our lives and nothing else, it would be enough. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God. I say that, and then I also want you to hear that sometimes reveling in the love of God and meditating on the mystery of the Spirit and celebrating Christ Jesus' death and victory looks a lot like feeding those who are hungry and caring for those that are sick and standing beside the stranger. Sometimes they look exactly the same, which is why it's so hard to talk about the difference between striving and healthy holiness, but I know the difference when I feel it in my life. I know it in the difference in my own life when it's, when it's from a place of meditating on the inseparable nature of God's love. Sometimes it's a word about your sin. Sometimes it's a word about your circumstance. Sometimes you need to hear a word about striving. But the promise of the covenant of God is that God will never abandon you. There's a fascinating story that came out. It was several years ago in California. It got such incredible press there. I don't know if you, you probably never even heard of this. It's about the Valley Springs Manor. It was an assisted living center in uh, the, the Central Valley of California. And it was a living center that was under terrible management and it wasn't making a profit. And uh, they came to that point very quickly where they would not be able to pay their employees. And at the moment where their employees learned there's no checks coming, uh, most of them just left. The problem with the situation is that there were still four, six, excuse me, 16 residents in the facility on the day that they locked the doors and put a closed sign on the front doors. 16 people that had been left to die, to survive on their own. Some of them bedridden, still recovering from surgery. Some of them unable to take care of themselves, themselves except for two men, Maurice Rowland and Miguel Alvarez. Maurice was a janitor and Miguel was a cook. And for 23 hours a day, for the next several days, they took care of those residents. The janitor doled out medicine. The cook provided food for everyone and anyone that needed it until the fire department and the sheriff's department became aware and they stepped in. 
And this led to sweeping legislation in California, the Residential Care Reform Act of 2014. It changed the way that um, California handles assisted living centers because two men refused to abandon those they cared for. You have a father that will never abandon you. You have a father that will never leave you. God is working it out. God is doing what God can. There are other players on the board. There are forces that will corrupt and twist and obscure the work of God and your ability to see it. But God works through all things. God works through every angle, every moment to make things right. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we are more than conquerors. I want to invite the prayer team to come up, the worship team to come up. In just a moment, we're going to sing about this great love. But I want to leave you today, I want to leave you today with the words of Scripture. Echo what Vicky read to us earlier. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not also give us everything else? Who will be in charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that can condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors from him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor past, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hope of the resurrection is that God is not done with our endings. Not that everything will go to our convenience but that the promise of the empty tomb is that in the end, our God will make all things new. Will you stand and sing with us?